The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I solve problems. I don't make them. The emergency COVID relief bill, the American Recovery Bill, that was passed by the House of Representatives in the wee small hours of yesterday morning, does both. It solves some problems. It makes some problems. It solves some immediate needs. It funds extended unemployment benefits for those who've run out of eligibility. It adds $400 a week to state unemployment benefits through the middle of the year. It funds vaccine production facilities. It funds expanded vaccine distribution programs. It provides new financial support to small businesses whose very existence is threatened by this ongoing pandemic. It expands eligibility for food stamps and other food assistance and assistance to food banks to help people through a desperate situation. It keeps childcare centers open and safe for essential workers and their children. It helps low-income Americans with their utility bills. It extends the moratorium against evictions and foreclosures past the middle of the year, and it aids people who've lost their employer-based health care to get coverage through the ACA by reopening the enrollment period for what we colloquially call Obamacare. And it sends $1,400 cash payments to every eligible adult and some lesser amounts for dependent children. And except for the indiscriminate distribution of stimulus checks, most of this spending is good and necessary. It should be done quickly because it mitigates suffering and it begins the healing. It helps us to get back by the middle of this year to something like a new, and I say this in air quotes, normal. Such a bill which the Bipartisan Policy Institute, who studies this stuff full-time, estimates would cost less than $1 trillion. It's so non-controversial that it should be passed with a voice vote in both houses. It should be done by now. But there is a bit of a problem because this bill continues and it ratifies and it extends irresponsible baseline plus federal budget mechanisms into the future. In fact, so far into the future, past the life expectancy of any member who voted for the plan. And in my view, that's a big problem that they've created. Have you heard mention in the talking points from President Biden, Vice President Harris, Press Secretary uh, Shinsaki, or Chief of Staff Klain, or from Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer? Have you heard any of them mention, have you heard any of them mention one word about the $130 billion in education funding for the period 
2022 to 2031. Do you think that's still how long the pandemic is going to last? Or the $10,000 per borrower student loan forgiveness portion of this bill? Or the $100 million for a quarter mile subway in San Francisco that Nancy Pelosi has been chasing for more than 20 years? Or the several million added for a bridge from New York to Canada that makes Chuck Schumer really happy? If you told people, if you put all these facts on the table, do you think the polls would still be 70% in favor of this legislation? <laughs> That's why they're not talking about those portions of the bill. If I were President Biden, I would have urged Congress to lower the income eligibility levels for the additional stimulus. I know that $2,000 stimulus per person was a campaign promise, but when the national debt is nudging up to being equal to the total U.S. gross domestic product. Well, when you're in that kind of financial trouble, sometimes campaign promises have to be reined in, in the face of fiscal reality. This money is not free, folks. You will have to repay it in the form of higher taxes or higher inflation. Even if you listen to those people who talk about modern monetary theory, the way modern monetary theory works is when inflation starts to accelerate, taxes get increased to reduce discretionary income. That's, that's the balancing act in MMT. So don't believe these people who tell you that it doesn't matter how much we borrow as long as it's spend as long as it's in our currency. The rest of what's being proposed and what's not being publicly discussed by the Biden-Harris duo who promised us transparency is a wish list of liberal Democrat and their public sector union for uh, companions, new spending. It's new spending. It's not COVID relief. It's new baseline budgeting for the next 10 years. And some of that spending is on preventing public sector layoffs of essential workers. Um, we have to put air quotes around the essential workers portion of that. Um, it's for public health, public education, expanding Medicaid, expanding the Affordable Care Act, redistributing the cost of prescription drugs from the Medicaid program to the private insurance market who will pass it on to those insured consumers and raise their premiums and deductibles. Probably some of the spending could be put, put to good use. But if that's true, why does it have to be rushed through Congress in the dead of night without hearings, without a consensus on the level and purpose of the spending, and without metrics for the spending of the money or metrics of anticipated results for that spending? Take, for example, the $130 billion appropriated for K-12 education on top of the $60 billion appropriated in December. We're told that, that getting schools is open is a priority and that we need to make classrooms safe. You know, so we need to spend money on that. And that's absolutely true. But the estimate from CBO, as well as other policy institutes, that's a congressional budget office, plus other policy institutes, is that it should cost about $600 per student 
to accomplish safely opening schools. There are some schools in some places which need new HVAC systems, okay? But that's on a case-by-case basis. And that certainly could be paid for out of the $60 billion that was appropriated by Congress in, in 2020, of which only $6 billion has been encumbered, not even spent yet, encumbered through requests from the states. So this is money, free money that has no restrictions that the bureaucrats, $130 billion over 10 years that the bureaucracy can write creative, uh, do creative writing around to um, benefit uh, teachers. You remember Al Shanker, who is was preceded Randy Weingartner as the president of the AFT. He said he'd start worrying about uh, representing the interests of students rather than teachers when the students started paying union dues. Well, you know, remember that as you as you watch this hundred and thirty billion dollars in money we do not have, revenue not coming in that is being budgeted over the next year to enhance the federal government's intrusion into public education K through 12. Now we've got nearly 200 billion that's not spent on COVID relief, but is budgeted as a permanent spending item over the next 10 year budget horizon. Remember we do base plus budgeting around here in the federal government. State government too. So wait just a second. Isn't that bait and switch? It's not emergency spending. It's a giant intervention in the public schools by the federal government without a single hour of congressional debate, without any specific targeted goals, and without a single metric for measuring the success of that spending. It may very well be necessary spending, but given our precarious financial situation, why don't you persuade me that it is necessary spending, that that it's true, that what you're saying is true. You know what? That sentence is worth a podcast all of its own. And I think we're going to write that one uh, and deliver it to you shortly. The same is true of appropriating a blanket 5% increase in federal spending to the states. The purpose, we are told, is to assist state and local governments who must balance their budgets and have suffered lost tax revenues during the pandemic. Well, I'll tell you, the pandemic didn't hit all states equally. There are hard hit states and there are states where tax revenues have held up well and where there's no immediate budget crisis. Not a word, a whisper of such an animal on the horizon. So this is a situation not to increase the baseline budget, but to award money only for this fiscal year. And it should be done on a case-by-case basis so that it is tied directly to the individual state's budget and revenue pre-pandemic compared to the 2020 revenue to maintain its workforce and its services. Again, on a case-by-case basis. California, for example, has a $15 billion surplus in its current year budget. 
It does not need additional assistance from the Treasury. Trust me, we're very creative about how we spend money and we're very coercive about how we collect revenue from our citizens. We don't need those dollars. So let's save that money, you know, let's instead of putting it into the pockets of state um, and local employees, the SEIU being behind this particular funding source, uh, let's save those dollars for something important like infrastructure redevelopment or immigration impact funding. Or are we going to fund those political promises with bushels of magical dollars as well? And as with education spending, this is not a one-time emergency spend. No, it's a multi-year baseline budget increase for the next decade. At a time we're projected to run a $4 trillion with a T dollar federal budget deficit in the current year, you know that is the size of the entire 2019 federal budget was $4 trillion and change, right? This year, the deficit alone will be that much. So in a situation like that, as we approach debt equal to GDP, is it really too much to ask to have a formal debate about the wisdom of the spending? You know, get the emergency spending out the door and then see if we can reach some, you know, mystical, memorable, you know, almost just touchable, almost out of reach bipartisan spend uh, resolution on some of these long term spending ideas. No, we can't do that because in the same in the very same um, bill. We've got a case, uh, we've got an additional 100,000 public health workers being created, okay? Uh, the, they're saying they're, they're doing it for contact tracing purposes. By the time you hire them and train them and place them, um, we're likely to find that we have um, pretty much vaccinated everybody in America who's vaccinatable. So you gotta then stop and ask, um, what, why are we doing this? Why are we adding 100,000 public health workers? You know, we got to help the American people to understand this spending. What kind of people are they planning to hire? When are those hires going to take place? Where are they going to take place? Why are they going to take place? And what are they going to do for the next 20 years since they will be career civil service employees? Healthcare in rural America is a chronic problem, but throwing people at that problem without a plan is going to be both frustrating and wasteful. And the same thing is true in our inner cities. So let's sit down and let's create, let's look at where our public health system is. Let's say, what do we want it to be? And what are the gaps we need to fill? And it may be 100,000 public health workers, it may be 200,000, and it may be 25,000. The rest of it may be for needed for facilities or medication or, or, or actual trained medical personnel. We don't know because there's been no debate. And in the 500 page bill, there is no detail. Last. Let's touch briefly 
on the planned expansion of the Affordable Act uh, Care. <laughs> Last, let's touch briefly on the planned expansion of the Affordable Care Act under the special enrollment period created by the American Recovery Act. This special enrollment is only for two years. It increases the level of premium credits that are offered by the government from 85% to 100% in some cases. You think that's only gonna last for two years? If you do have a bridge in the, in the Yukon, I'd like to discuss with you. It expands eligibility so much that according to the Wall Street Journal, a family of four earning $240,000 a year can get a $9,000 credit on their insurance through the exchange. Normally, they would just get a tax deduction for some portion of their premiums, probably half. In this portion of the bill, I have no doubt about the intent. The intent of this portion of the bill, the two years that it provides for is a tell because this is a way to pave, this is a method to pave the way for the expansion of the ACA with a public option. Now, mind you, I don't have any argument against, in fact, I favor a public option, but I truly resent the sneaky way that Democrats are trying to approach it. You know what? An entitlement, once it's given, can never be reversed. So people making $240,000 a year are going to forever expect to get a $9,000 or better annual credit on their health insurance premiums. And people who have been paying 85% and are now going to pay uh, get 100% um, of their uh, premium paid for by the by the federal government for the next two years. Do you think they're going to want to give that up in two years? I don't think so. So if you want to read more about how I would craft a public option that any conservative would support, go to our brand new recreated reimagineamerica.org website and do a search on public option or on health care. There are a couple of pieces there. Uh, that are as germane today as the day I wrote them, I think, five years ago, which should, should give you some pause in terms of the speed at which our government is able to actually solve problems. So here is the bottom line. Under the guise of COVID relief, the liberal base of the Democratic Party is going on a spending spree that weakens our national security by placing an unsustainable debt burden on your great, 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 great grandchildren. It's a new form of feudalism, actually, if you want to think about it. Do Democrats really want to weaken the American nation? Absolutely not. No, it's not their intent. They have two objectives that might do just that, but that's not their intent, okay? The two things are, first, they fear if they don't shove all this spending on pet projects under the door in the dark of night on a desperate party line vote, spending to expand the role of government in our lives will not be possible because history tells us 
they'll be in the minority after the 2022 midterms and won't be able to complete their agenda if they do it through regular congressional order where you have to work across the aisle and make compromises and all those silly, silly things. Second, and as much as I hate to agree with the newly magnetized Kevin McCarthy, House Minority Leader, in this case, he is absolutely correct. This so-called American Recovery Act is a shell filled with gifts to specific interest groups important to the Democratic base and their re-election coffers. I think Democrats are dead wrong in their approach, if not correct in their conclusion. Historically, the first midterm of a presidency sees the president's party lose seats in the House and in the Senate. But given the internal war within the GOP, and Joe Biden's considerable personal popularity, it isn't necessarily so. It isn't necessarily so that the GOP can win a majority in Congress next year. Not if COVID is is knocked down and the economy starts to creep back, but profligate spending jammed through on a party line vote that favors special interest priorities and leaves the nation facing mounting debt service, potential marketplace inflation, unable to afford the vital upgrades for a 21st century infrastructure. (laughs) Those problems could do for the GOP in 2022 what the GOP has no hope of doing for themselves. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.